Today on The Ticker Tapes, we hear from Salman, who went from being someone who cares for patients himself to having a sudden, unexplained heart attack at the age of just 34. In terms of my mental recovery, I think it took a bit of time. I think it's more the apprehension and the worry that it might happen again. The worries about I'm the main breadwinner in the household. My parents live with me. Um, I've got two young daughters. Although my wife's a GP, she's also earning. But you still worry, if something happened to me, what's going to happen? From the British Heart Foundation, I'm Sarah Marsh. And on the ticker tapes, we hear from people living with heart and circulatory conditions. On this episode, Salman tells me how, just months after having his second daughter, Isma, he suffered a heart attack one midweek morning, having returned from a run. Salman talks about his recovery, how he's balanced his heart health issues with being a dad to two young daughters, and how being a GP himself inspires him to want to support others to share their own heart stories. Well, firstly, Salman, thank you so much for joining us today on The Ticker Tapes. You had actually got in touch with the British Heart Foundation, having started listening to the podcast yourself, hadn't you? So it, it's, it's, I think it's really nice that we're talking about your own story on here today. No, no, definitely. I think it was one of those things that I was probably searching for without kind of realising I was searching for it. Um, but yeah, so it came to me at the right time. And so I thought I'd share my story as well. I wanted, if we could, to start off um, with you telling me a bit about your life before the heart attack, which happened completely out of the blue in July 2020. So you're happily married, you work as a GP, you're a partner in a practice, you have two young daughters, Amana and Isma, and you uh, work in Tower Hamlets in London. So casting your mind back to early 2020, what was happening for you with sort of work and family around that time? Yeah, it was a very busy time. Because unfortunately, that's when COVID happened as well. So in terms of work, it was very busy. I had my daughter Isma in March. So she was just before lockdown. So it was very busy with looking after um, mum, her mum, and then her baby when she came after. And obviously, um, then the older child, um, she's four years older than Isma Amana. Mm -hmm. And so I had to take more of a role in looking after her as well, just because mum needed more help at that time so yeah so generally a very busy time and then covid happened and lockdown and then working from home as well as working in the surgery it's a combination of doing both um so yeah it was quite a difficult time you were juggling a lot it's fair to say yeah and that that was you know that time obviously covid hit in march 2020 here and your heart attack happened in the july but over those three four months sort of leading up to what happened, it must have been really hectic for you and challenging because you were a GP. I mean, you never stopped working. You were right there on the front line, working all the way through with a new baby. Do you remember feeling particularly stressed or under pressure or at the time were you just sort of getting on with it? So at the time, yeah, I was just getting on with it. I didn't really realise that I was in or under quite a lot of stress at that time, only on reflection after what happened that I kind of realised that I was. I think a lot of the issues that I faced were related to me kind of neglecting my physical health as well, okay? So I think with baby being busy, didn't really have time for running, which is what I used to do a lot anyway. That affected my weight and then having more takeaway food and 
unfortunately, a GP lifestyle isn't that great because most of the time you're sitting. And especially during COVID, it was a lot of telephone and uh, video consultations. And so, again, it was even more sitting than normal. Also, being a partner is slightly different from being uh, my wife's a locum GP, for example. So it's slightly different. You can choose your hours more when you're a locum GP. When you're a partner, if especially during COVID times, we had a responsibility to make sure that all of our patients were looked after. So even if mm. we couldn't get GPs to come in, we would still go in just because we needed to make sure that there was someone there on site if needed to be seen. So that's like an added stress that I didn't really think about until more recently. I mean, I can see that. I think all of us we're sort of dealing with our own levels of stress and anxiety and you were dealing with a lot yourself but also carrying the stress and anxiety of many patients on your back at the yeah. same time that that must have been really really difficult it was a very difficult time um especially because with covid um i'm not sure if you realize there was quite a, a proportionately there was quite a higher number of deaths in the particular community that I was working in. Right. So in Tower Hamlets, um, the Bengali community there, they had quite a high death rate compared to other ethnicities and other groups. And there are various factors for that. And it's something that they're still studying and looking into right now. But I think it's essentially to do with the fact that there was a lot of households that were quite multi-generational. So there'd be like um, people from grandchildren all the way up to grandparents, even great grandparents living in the same household. And then so when children, for example, were getting COVID and bringing it into the house or when the younger adults were going into work and bringing it into the house, that had quite a significant effect on the elderly population. There's a significant proportion of elderly patients that pass away. And that was quite an emotional toll on me. I didn't realise it at the time. Again, it's yeah. more something on reflection. It's just that. I work in a community that I was actually raised in. Yeah. Okay? So I actually personally knew quite a few of the people. And I don't think I realised how much of an emotional toll it takes on you because you kind of deal with it as a doctor. But actually, as a, at the end of the day, I'm still a human. So yeah. it's all of that. It, I'm, I was kind of probably carrying that a bit without realising. It's such a personal job because you you do take yeah. all that, you know, you're listening to people's stories every day. And that is really challenging. And also, it wasn't like you were getting to put your feet up at home. You had two very young children. Your wife's a GP as, as well, as you say. Yeah. It's interesting what you said about um, perhaps you'd taken a step back with your own health, understandably yeah. so, for a while. Because in the previous years, you were incredibly healthy. You'd run three London marathons, hadn't you, in sort of yeah. the five, six years leading up to what happened? Yeah, so I I, I love running um, and lo running was my passion more because it's not that I had good times or anything like that. It's more mentally that was my release. So I used to just go out running because I found it like relaxing more than anything else. And again, it's something that I've realised more in reflection rather than knowing at the time. So even though, so maybe if I had that um, awareness at that time, I would have made time to just go out for a quick run mm. just because mentally it probably would have made me feel better but yeah. I don't think I realized until after what happened the day of the heart attack you were on a day off and actually it was one of those days because it was a rare day off for you that yeah. you had just you'd done a 10k um yeah. at a fairly steady pace you walked a bit ran a bit you yeah. you come home gone up for a shower and it was that at that point that you started to feel really unwell so can you just tell us what happened next and what sort of symptoms you were having yeah, so I was I was in the I went into the shower, but I hadn't actually started having the shower yet. So I was just sitting, and I just suddenly started feeling 
unwell. That's unfortunately that's the only way that I can describe it. That encompasses everything. I just felt yeah. generally very unwell. Um, I started becoming very sweaty. Um, I had developed this intense chest tightness mm-hmm. um, in the middle of my chest, and then also going towards my left. And then I just started feeling a bit panicky, um, and I didn't realize what was happening. And I was still there for probably about ten minutes or so, trying to figure out what's going on. Mm-hmm. And then. Once I realized, actually, this isn't getting any better, I just left the room. Um, so my wife was just outside and mm-hmm. she was busy doing whatever she was doing. And she saw me and she didn't really think anything. She just thought I'd come out the shower because mm-hmm. that's how much I was sweating. Wow. Then I told her, look, I, I think I'm unwell. And then she immediately stopped and said, look, let's see what's going on. Even though I had all the typical symptoms, I was still dismissing it, despite being a GP. Um, I was like, no, I, uh, I I was trying to convince myself that it was indigestion. Because okay. um, I had a black coffee before I went for a run. And I thought, yeah, that's it. That's what's caused it. So mm. I even told her, look, go get some Gaviscon. Let me try it. Even though I've never had Gaviscon before and I've never needed it before, I told her to go get it. So she got it and then she got it. But then she's like, look, I don't think you're right. So she she's the one that insisted on calling the ambulance and she did. Uh, and I'm grateful that she did at that time. It's funny, isn't it? Because I think it's really interesting how you're a medical professional, uh, so experienced in your field, but still the human thing for each of us is to kind of, if it happens to you, you downplay it, don't you think, oh, it couldn't possibly. Definitely. And you were probably thinking... I'm 34, I'm pretty active. And even as a GP, you think, well, yeah, it's much more likely to be indigestion. It's funny, isn't it? And I also remember you saying that um, it was like almost like normal life was carrying on while all this was sort of happening to you in slow motion because Isma was asleep on the bed. And she woke up and smiled at you. And in that moment, there was like a little moment of hope, which is lovely. So were you sort of sitting, you know, waiting for the ambulance to arrive, thinking this is just surreal? Yeah, so I was in a bit of a daze. Um, I'm, I'm not really sure what's going on. Um, I was still in pain. Um, as you said, so I was lying on the, f- or sitting on the floor and Isma was on the bed. Um, she was asleep. Um, and that's, I was in a sig- significant pain. Yeah. Um, and, but again, I was still trying to say that like, it's not a heart attack. It's not a heart attack. But uh, I kind of probably knew that it was. Mm-hmm. But, um, and then Isma just woke up and she, at that moment, um, she smiled and then I uh, and, and honestly it was I, I felt like my pain went for a moment oh, okay um and then so I was trying to like kind of medically explain it so um I think it's probably um so when babies smile at you you release a hormone called oxytocin so and that generally makes you feel better and I think that's probably what happened but again I see it as my little mini miracle so yeah, yeah. oh that's yeah. lovely so the paramedics arrived they did an ECG which didn't show any significant changes to your heart rate or rhythm. Um, yeah. So at that stage, even they were still not clear whether or not you had had a heart attack. But one yeah. of the paramedics decided to blue light you as a precaution to Bart's Hospital, where there is a specialist cardiac centre. And that actually was quite a pivotal decision, wasn't yeah. it? No, definitely. So because um, initially when they saw me, I think it was soon after I, I had that moment with Isma. Mm. And so um, they, I didn't look that bad. <laughs> I think I, right. I was probably in a little bit less pain. Um, so I, I managed to walk down to the ambulance and that's where they did the ECG, those kind of things. And then whilst they were doing that, I started to become unwell again. So I was starting to have the pain. I was clutching my chest and then still being quite sweaty. So I think the first paramedic just looked at the ECG, as you said, and they, they were like, look, it's not 
anything concerning will take you to our local hospital um, and I'm sure they'll just send you home. You're a young, fit um, person, I'm sure it's fine. Um, but the other paramedic, who I think saved my life, um, he looked at me and then he saw that I looked unwell. Even though all mm. of my observations and readings were okay, mm. he looked at me and looked at how bad I looked. Um, and then he decided that we're just going to take you to the tertiary centre, which is Bart's. So at the hospital, they did an angiogram and they found a blockage and said they needed to put a stent in. And at that stage, obviously, you knew you had had a heart attack. You know, just a couple of hours later, you're in this situation where you're on the ward. It's, you know, the height of COVID, so no family's allowed in. So you're having to phone your wife and tell her that you have had a heart attack. That must have been a hard phone call to make. It was, and it wasn't. As I said, I was probably still in a bit of a daze. I, 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 I don't think I even realised that it was still real. I, mm. I think I felt like I was in a bit of a dream. So I think I just called her quite, um, without even too much worry about how it affects her. I'm okay. just yeah, quite chilled out. I'm like, yeah, I had a heart attack. And so, and she was like, what? Because so, nobody expected it. Even no. after I was taken by ambulance, everybody was like, it's going to be fine. It's going yeah. to be fine. But then. Had a heart attack, and an hour after being taken to hospital, I was calling her and telling her that. So yeah. I think she she was a bit taken aback. I don't think I was realizing how serious the situation could have been at that time. Mm. Mm. Uh, I was just uh, yeah, uh, just living in a bit of a dream. Which makes complete sense. It all happened so mm. quickly, and there's no history of heart disease in your family, is there? There was no sort of obvious answers as to what might have triggered this heart attack? No, so we're not sure. So the only main thing would probably be genetics in general, rather than specific to my family. But my parents, my um, extent, uh, like grandparents, nobody's had heart attacks or heart issues before. Mm-hmm. Um, my parents don't even have diabetes, which is quite common in Bengali population. So again, it's not something that anybody could kind of pinpoint exactly. Okay. And was that hard in itself? Do you think it would have been easier if there had been like an obvious trigger? You could rationalise it more, do you think? Yeah, I think in the long run, yes. Because I think even to this day, I think it's affecting me in some ways because I still don't know what what caused it exactly. So even initially in the first year after my heart attack, I was still very apprehensive about exercise in particular and especially yeah. running. Okay. Mm-hmm. It's just mm-hmm. because I, for me, I started to associate any form of exercise with the heart attack. That's probably the worst thing, thing that you could do because in terms of after having a heart attack and in terms of your rehab, you're supposed to gradually increase what you're doing and those kind of things. But I had this aversion to exercise. So mm-hmm. and that was a bit of a difficulty, especially because I think the main thing that I think now is the main risk factor is probably at that time I was quite overweight. Okay, right. so I was, my weight was between 90 and 95 kg, which for my height, I'm not that tall, was quite high. So I think that was the main thing that I could pinpoint. But it, normally, being overweight doesn't directly cause a heart attack. It's just that usually when you're overweight, you have other cardiovascular risk factors as a result of your unhealthy lifestyle, for example, mm-hmm. that would have put you... And, but all of that was fine. So I didn't smoke. I didn't have um, high cholesterol, anything like that. I didn't have diabetes. So it's just one of those things. Yeah, just kind of a lottery, isn't it? It's yeah, but that that in itself is is hard to cope with. So you you were put on six different types of medication. You were recovering at home for about a month. 
And just as you said there, you were building yourself back up slowly, despite mm. the anxiety. You were sort of literally putting one foot in front of the other, walking and yeah. and 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 eating well. But the mental recovery was harder, wasn't it? Mm. It was much harder. Yeah. And I wondered, it was interesting. I remember you saying to me the first time we spoke that you had never seen yourself as a sixth person. But as a GP, rather, you'd always seen yourself as someone who helps other people who were ill. And I thought yeah. that was quite interesting you know, for you to sort of come to terms with that. So what was the mental recovery like and how did you learn to live with it? It was very difficult, um, but I don't think, again, I think it's one of those things that I don't think I realised how difficult it was until on reflection, I was reflecting on, on my own action and also spoke to my wife because I think she could see how I was and she was very patient with me. And I think sometimes when somebody's very patient with you because they're worried that, it's going to, she didn't really want to talk to me about the heart attack. So okay. um, so I think that was more her personal anxieties about what happened on that particular day. Um, but I don't know if that helped me or if that maybe gave me false reassurance that she was okay as well. And mm. yeah, I don't know. So um, in terms of my mental recovery, I think it took a bit of time. I think it's more the apprehension and the um, worry that it might happen again mm. the worries about so I'm the, I'm the main breadwinner in the household my parents lived with me um, yeah. I've got two young daughters although my wife's a GP she's also earning but you still worry that look what hap- if something happened to me what's going to happen yeah, so I think that was a big worry and I uh, so I started looking into things lots of different things I started looking into like investments I started looking into wills I started looking yeah. into different things that I had never thought about before just because well look if something happens to me um I need mm. to be prepared um and I think um and I said this to you before I think my faith helped quite a lot at that time yeah. So I think it grounded me. So I, I, I and I think that I could see that. Well, for me personally speaking, my faith made me realize that everything that happens to me happens for a reason. Okay. Right. And I, I felt that it was basically God's way of telling me that look, I needed to slow down and I needed to look after myself so I could be there for everybody else. Yeah. And also, it's like a second chance at being a better person, at being yeah. a better. Muslim for me that's a really positive and inspiring way to look at it like you say it's a a second chance did you reassess a lot of things then I think I reassessed my whole life if I'm honest really yeah so I think so I needed to look at my priorities so I think uh, all the time I think when you're going through life uh, you're growing up so you have certain priorities and you have certain things that you want to do at certain periods Mm. and I, I think my with me my life was I had targets and goals and things that I needed to do. And I was so, so, so into that that I wasn't really looking out at living life, if that makes sense. Yeah. Okay? So it's like it's like children. So I was like, yeah, I needed to make sure that I was earning a decent amount. So they go to good schools and do that. And mm. so not but not actually spending time with the children if that, mm-hmm. or as much time as I could have done. So I think that made me change as a person a lot. So I, I realized that, look, I need to make time for myself, number mm. one, and number two, for those around me. So th- there's no point in me spending all my time at work and doing other things to make money for my children mm. when I actually don't spend any time with them because they're not going to remember that time that I was at work. They're going to remember the time that I was there playing with them in the park. So, and I think that's how I probably changed the most. I think it's made me reassess myself. 
The BHF's life-saving research is giving hope to so many people. If you would like to support our work, please consider a donation by going to bhf.org.uk forward slash donate pod. So you, you did go back to work after just it was about a month, wasn't it? And you, yeah. you did start running a little again, having been cleared to do so by your cardiology team. Um, mm. So you were slowly building yourself back up. Do you think when you were back at work dealing with patients, did your experience impact that at all? I wondered whether whether that sort of fed into you know conversations you had with patients. Did, did it sort of come up that you talked to them about it? Or? It did come up. Whenever I saw an opportunity where I thought somebody might benefit from advice to maybe reduce their risk factors, for example. So, if, mm-hmm. for example, there was somebody with a young person with very poorly controlled diabetes and they're not really realising their consequences of their poor diabetes. So I could hit in there, look, I, um, I don't have diabetes, but if you have diabetes, you're four times more likely to have a heart attack. Mm-hmm. Okay. So um, and if that happens, um, you, you don't really want that to happen. It's happened to me. And this is yeah. how it felt like. And then and I didn't have it, diabetes. So the fact that you do puts you at even more risk. So mm. it's important. So and, I, I, and I've used that a lot. And it's usually with a specific cohort um, of patients. So it's usually young Asian males. Right. Just because I thought, look, that's me, basically. So if I can give them advice to prevent a heart attack from happening... If I need to use my own personal story for that, mm. just so that they realise that it, if it can happen to me, it can happen to anyone. So, um, uh, and I think that has made a difference. I think I had one very profound moment with a patient, mm-hmm. um, which uh, which actually was not the same cohort of patients, but um, is a, um, a young Caucasian lady. And she called with symptoms typical of a heart attack. But she was telling me that it was a panic attack. Okay, okay. so I convinced her over the phone that look, exact you the symptoms that you're describing are exactly the same symptoms that I had when I had my heart attack. So I okay. strongly insist that you go to hospital right now or call nine nine nine. She called nine nine nine, and she did. She went in and she had a heart attack. Wow. Okay, so she literally called the next morning saying thank you for saving my life. Um, wow. And then so that was. A, a very profound moment for me. Uh, again, it's uh, uh, coming back for me and uh, my religion. I think the way that I looked at it, maybe one of the reasons that I had my heart attack is that then I could hopefully save people this way, if that mm. makes sense. So yeah, using using my experience and then using it as a positive um, and trying to positively affect people's lives, um, yeah. hopefully. And that sort of leads really nicely to my next question, because today is an important day for you. You're celebrating Eid. So it's perhaps a particularly poignant time to speak about how your faith as a strict Muslim and being part of the Bengali community has contributed in a way to you feeling driven to speak out about your story and about heart health. And you're very open about what happened to you. Mm. Um, But have you found that within maybe the community you you grew up in or, you know, certain other communities that you work closely with that some people find it hard to speak openly about heart health or health in general? Yeah, I I think with the Bengali population that I work with in particular, so I work in Tower Hamlets um, and it's got quite a high proportion of um, Bengalis from for the last 20 to 30 years. Uh, Generally speaking, they don't talk about their issues like this much okay mm-hmm. so heart issues 
or even like amongst themselves they don't um there are like old wives tales that they will talk about and that's perpetuated okay. but not usually the more important things okay so um so that's what i find anyway but one of the things that i found was just being a bengali doctor in that community they do open up to me okay so wow. a lot of the times if they come in um because they may not have had a bengali speaking doctor before so right. they will normally tell me lots of different things then it's up to me to try and figure out or decipher what's important and okay. then zone in on that a little bit and then that's when i've started to use my story okay so i've told a lot of my patients especially as i said if i think that is going to make a difference to them mm. i've told them that look i have had a heart attack and because of these things it's because i didn't do this particularly well and then i think that we have an opportunity to prevent this happening to you uh, and i'm i'm hoping that they're taking that on board but again i think i might need to do this in a more long term constructive way okay mm. so maybe a bit more structured something like that and that's something that i am looking to do in the future hopefully i think it's really interesting that you know you know you're using your story as a way to to make people feel more connected to their own health issues but also potentially as a way to encourage others to speak out and i wondered how mm. you felt about that do you feel that that is the way that we are going to get we're going to reach perhaps communities who perhaps have been harder to reach in terms of in terms of telling stories about health and talking openly about health and breaking down those taboos is that the best way to do it to get people from those communities to tell their own story and then so people see themselves reflected perhaps definitely I think yeah definitely and I think that's one of the reasons that I chose to work where I did I work in literally 5 minutes away from where I was raised um and I thought look if I'm part of the community and they can see me they know me okay so if I give them advice it would be a bit different from somebody who doesn't speak the language or yeah. doesn't know them okay so I think that is something that I actively thought about even before the heart attack but I feel like with the heart attack maybe it's something that I can use to yeah hopefully spread more positive messages about healthcare in general as well because mm. I, i think the problem is in certain groups you become quite closed um you become quite insular if you live in the same kind of um community for a while and then mm. you may not hear some all of the kind of health related issues that matter to you because you may only hear messages from the small community that you're in if that makes sense yeah. okay and then that can be it can be a vicious cycle where you may have like myths and old wives tales spreading but then things that are important that you need to know and try and prevent so people will be so distracted by i don't know it might be something like issues with like headaches that they've had for a while that might be related to stress or something like that but not looking at the fact that they've had poorly controlled diabetes for a long time because mm. it's so normal in some families that diabetes is just something that runs in their family that's what they say but they don't realize that actually even if it's running in your family you can control it and yeah. if you control it you're preventing so many things that could happen to you later on mm. and i think people just some people just take it as a given it's like yeah i've got diabetes but my dad had it my grandfather had it so it's just bound to happen and they don't really talk about it much in a way that's conducive to them becoming better they just yeah. kind of see it as them having it yeah. which is interesting isn't it so it's like generational practices that have just like as you say sort of built up and just become the way of things we need to chip away at that as well and 
you know, build those bridges with those communities and build confidence that, you know, mm. that they that they are being seen and heard. What more could a charity or charities like the British Heart Foundation, what do we need to do to mm. to reach those communities? What can we do to make sure that we're being even more inclusive with the with our storytelling lens, with the stories that we tell? It's interesting, actually. So uh, obviously language plays a part, okay? So maybe even seeing, um, having things translated or done in certain languages that are more common in certain areas, might, that might help. Having yeah. stories from their community, okay, as, as we're doing right now, hopefully, um, yeah. that would probably also help. And I think um, just going into the community itself, so maybe going into the local community centre or the mosque or the gurdwara, going into there where there's an active community already and mm-hmm. then you're just using that as an avenue to spread the positive messages rather than completely redoing things. Okay, Sometimes I think when um, we as the healthcare profession, we kind of deliver messages in, in the same way to everyone. Okay, So you can uh, but it may not the same kind of methods may not work with all communities it might be that we need more active engagement with the population there and having people who are advocates for them and then trying to yeah kind of ch- champion have people championing the British Heart Foundation in a way and then hopefully that gives them a bit more credence to it and then hopefully yeah encourage them to take on board the messages that you're delivering yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's 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 so true. And tackling health inequality and access to equitable access to healthcare is, is something that, you know, is really high yeah. um in importance for our charity. But it's it's an ongoing piece of work. Yeah. And we can only do so with sort of talking to people like yourself, people who, yeah. you know, live and breathe it and work in those communities and, and, and are the experts really. Um just coming on to the last couple of questions, Simon, yeah. I wondered how the BHF had been able to support you and if there was anything in particular any BHS support services that you'd found particularly helpful in you know during your journey so as I said um, I think the main thing was the ticker tapes which was the podcast okay yeah. so I've been doing a lot of walking mm-hmm. okay and I found that when I'm walking um, just to make it more enjoyable I listen to podcasts and yeah. I just came across the ticker tapes um, what happened is listening to these stories I could see so much and it explained to me why I was feeling the way that I was feeling okay right. so and and I could feel that that sense of community with other patients who've gone through similar things and and I think that was quite important to me I think uh, just it, it's not just me it's happened to lots of different people right. um, and the way that I was feeling was quite normal so um, and I think that was quite important um, and I think that's probably the main thing um, I also get the the magazine that you guys have as well, Heart Matters. Heart Matters that's it. So, yeah. so I so I read that as well. There's quite interesting stories there as well, which is kind of similar to the ticket yeah. tapes. Yeah. So, yeah. So I think they're yeah. the main two things. But I think I hopefully in the future I want to be a bit more actively involved. So maybe trying to work with any local BHF work mm-hmm. going on this in this area, and then yeah. see if I can do that. Yeah. Oh, that's lovely to hear. And. And like you say, just uh, not feeling alone is so important because heart disease is the biggest killer mm. of people in this country. It impacts so many people, but you can feel very isolating, can't it? So just having yeah. a mechanism to know that you're not alone and other people are feeling the same way you are is very comforting. Yeah, yeah. No, definitely. Yeah. Um, 
one of the things that happened with me um, was I, especially after having the heart attack, I felt like quite emotional mm. without any particular reason. Um, mm. And it was happening quite often. And I co- couldn't really explain it. I, I wasn't feeling depressed or anything. I, 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 I kind of knew what happened. But I just, I think whenever I had any kind of thoughts about what could have happened, I mm. think it just made me quite emotional. And, uh, and then one of, um, actually, this wasn't um, from the tapes. T- t- I, um, I had a somebody from the local hospital called me it was a he was a volunteer um mm. who works with the rehab team so i think they focus more on the psychological aspects of having something mm-hmm. like this happen to you and he was just telling me look this is completely normal he felt the same way and the and then actually that just reassured me that i wasn't going crazy or something like that yeah. but yeah mm. yeah oh that's really nice to hear and and just sort of finally what you know we're coming up we're almost three years on now from when you had the heart attack how are you doing now and what are your sort of hopes for the future okay um yeah i'm doing well overall um so i i lost weight so it's probably i was about between 90 and 95 kg i'm now about 75 kg so which is a lot better for me in terms of proportion the only frustrating thing was so when i lost the weight I realized that I could run a lot better. So yeah. um, so I could run a lot better from a, like my joints point of view. Mm-hmm. But then, um, unfortunately, I think I pushed myself too much. So I, I, I was trying, I started to run faster and which I probably shouldn't have done in hindsight. Nobody told me not to, but um, <laughs> it's just one of those things that um, I really, I started developing a bit of pain or a few pains. And so at the moment, they're currently investigating just to see if there's anything else that's going on um so I've, I've had a few scans so mm-hmm. um it's a nuclear medicine pet scan which is like a um it's like a stress scan for your heart just to see if there's anything going on there so at the moment i'm still relaxing so um walking um mm-hmm. i go to the gym do some weights and those kind of things long term in the future um i think it's made me motivated to work with people like myself so people who have had heart attacks or trying to prevent people from having heart attacks Mm -hmm. so um, one of the things that I'm going to hopefully look into is maybe even having some sort of coaching group within my cohort in in my GP surgery so if I kind of identify patients who are maybe similar age to me or something but they might be overweight have diabetes high blood pressure those kind of Mm -hmm. things and trying to see if we can if I can hopefully coach them so that we can try and prevent those things from getting worse and maybe hopefully even get those kind of things better so I've done a coach like healthcare coaching course as well um, in in preparation for that So, so hopefully that helps yeah your girls are now seven and three yeah seven and three like you say it did make you reassess in terms of spending times with them so I guess the best kind of times are you know with your girls and your wife and just trying to enjoy life and you know obviously you do a job that you love that is challenging but just finding that balance isn't it no definitely um if if, uh, I probably haven't mentioned this to you before but um at the moment work is probably the most stressful it's ever been but the thing is with the heart attack I think it's made me reassess my stress a lot more so I can recognize the signs a lot earlier. And then not only that, I can do something about it. So when I've been feeling very stressful recently, I still made sure that I had time to go out for a long walk um, and then clear my head and do those kind of things which helped me. So, Mm. um, So having that awareness, I think, has 
made me realize that even if I do come across stress, there's ways of dealing with it now that I uh, that help me, which are personal to me. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for sparing the time to talk to us on the ticker dates and share your story. That's okay. Thanks so much. Thank you. Every five minutes, someone in the UK has a heart attack. In the 1960s, seven out of 10 UK heart attacks were fatal, but now seven out of 10 have survived. The BHF is currently funding 33 million pounds of research into heart attacks. We want thousands more people to survive a heart attack or better yet, not have them in the first place, but we can only do so with your support. We're also committed to telling stories of heart attack survivors of all ages and from right across the cultural spectrum. So if you've been inspired by this conversation, please do get in touch. If you've got any questions or concerns about your heart or circulatory health and would find it helpful to speak with a cardiac nurse on the BHF's heart helpline, go to our website at bhf.org.uk slash hearthelpline where you'll find all the contact options. You'll also find useful information in the episode notes and on our website bhf.org.uk. If you've got your own heart story or have any thoughts about this episode, please get in touch by emailing the ticker tapes at bhf.org.uk. See you next time on the ticker tapes. <laughs> <laughs>